0: It's been said that Aristotle once argued that, quote, Monarchy is the one system of government where power is exercised for the good of all. Now, this is uh, perhaps an odd idea to be presented not only from a church pulpit, uh, but one in America at that. Um, I'm not saying that the kings and queens of this world have historically exercised their power always and only for the good of their subjects. However, it is worth noting that the subjects of a kingdom ought to honor their king. For a king's exaltation ought to bring his kingdom good, while the judgment of the king often tears down the whole kingdom. Generally speaking, the relationship between a king and his kingdom, and the kingdom and their king, is a symbiotic relationship, bringing mutual benefit or mutual devastation. Maybe this surprises you. It's striking and surprising to hear that the writers of the New Testament, the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they told the early church, early believers to honor a wicked and evil emperor. You can find that in 1 Peter 2, verse 17. Such a, a calling and a command must be obeyed with great wisdom and care. But, make no mistake, it must be obeyed. A king ought to have an interest in the good of his subjects. For loyalty normally strengthens a kingdom. A king ought to have an interest in the the good of his people. And the people ought to have an interest in the good of their king. Perhaps we could improve upon Aristotle's idea saying that a good king exercises his power for the good of all his subjects. And his subjects honor him because he is a good king. Well, think about this idea as we study Psalm 41 this morning. If you haven't done so already, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 41. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 469. 469. Now, when you arrive at Psalm 41, you'll notice that it's followed by Psalm 42. You'll probably notice more than that. Uh, You'll probably notice that Psalm 41 is the last book of Book 1 of the Psalms, and that Psalm 42 is the beginning of Book 2 of the Psalms. The Psalms are the, the poems, the songs, and the prayers of the ancient people of God. They were composed and then collected into five books. Many scholars understand the Psalms. We find in these five books that they were carefully compiled to craft a single message about God's work in the world. They weren't just composed and then compiled to create a message, but they were also composed and compiled to call God's people to worship. The, the, the prayer, this poetry and, and, and the prayer that we're studying today, today is, is meant to move us. It's meant to shape us. It's meant to lead us on to greater faith in God and the Son who fulfills these psalms. In Luke chapter 24, verse 44, Jesus said this to His disciples, "...these are My words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about Me in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled." Jesus, as we'll see today, Lord willing, fulfills Psalm 41... And that he is ultimately the blessed man who considers the poor and needy. Jesus is the one who took on the sin and suffering of God's people in order to save us from that great enemy of sin and death. While David is the author of this psalm, as you can see from the ascription there, Jesus, the greater son promised to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, was and is the final fulfillment of this psalm. We apply this psalm to our lives... Through Jesus and his suffering for us and for our salvation. Please follow along now as I read. And as you read along and and hear this psalm, notice how this psalm begins and ends. It begins with a man who is blessed by God, but it ends with God being blessed by man. Psalm 41, to the choir master, a psalm of David. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words. While his heart gathers iniquity, when he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen. And amen. The arc of Psalm 41, it follows a distinctive pattern. The first three verses offer declarations of a man approved by God. And then things get personal. The psalmist speaks for himself and reveals that he is one who is acquainted with grief, which we see there in verses 4 through 10. In verses 11 and 12, then things begin to look up as the psalmist declares that he is assured of glory. With the, and then the, the psalm closes there in verse 13 in the very same way that every book of those five books of the psalms closes with the adoration of God if you're taking notes these four points will form the outline of the rest of the sermon adored by God that's number one number two acquainted with grief number three assured of glory and number four adoration of God Let's begin with our first point, adored by God. And I'll repeat each of those points as we're moving into each new section, adored by God. And here we're looking at verses one to three. Read those verses yet again, beginning there in verse one. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. The first words of this psalm, blessed is one who considers the poor, remind us of the first psalm, the first words of the Psalter as a whole. Psalm 1, as you may recall, opens with these words, blessed is the man. Blessed is the man who walks not on the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and day and night. And here in verse 1, we are told that the man who considers the poor, which is to say the man who cares for the needs of the weak, the helpless, the vulnerable, is blessed of God. With his care for the poor, this blessed man of Psalm 41 has revealed that he really has delighted in God's law. He has clearly applied the law of Deuteronomy chapter 15 verses 7 through 10 to his heart and life. There in Deuteronomy chapter 15 the people of Israel are called to care for their brothers who have become poor. They're called to to open their hands and to lend generously to their fellow Hebrews. And upon this command we read in Deuteronomy chapter 15 verse 10 you shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work And in all that you undertake. You see the Lord adores the one who keeps his law. This is what it means to be blessed. It means to be favored and loved by God. The man who is adored by God is the man who has an outward care and concern for others and for their welfare. He isn't consumed by his wants or needs. What about us? Do we we delight in God's law because we delight in God and his grace? Are we keepers of God's word, doers of God's word, or, or does it go in one ear and, and kind of out the other? How do you apply, how do you apply the, the preaching uh, you hear or, or the truth you learn in Bible studies or, or uh, the, the daily reading uh, you attend to? Do you, do you take what you've learned, and do you pray over it? Do you take time, you know, maybe on Sunday afternoon or some other time during the week to, to discuss it with friends and family and, and church family, do you think, how do, you, how do I put this into practice this coming week? Do you take time to, to work through those kinds of things? Do we delight in God's law? What we're seeing here through the, the lens of the blessed man, the man adored by God, is that the people of Israel were to have an outward orientation in their lives. They were to be generous and supportive to those in need. In short, they were to be merciful as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The psalmist is, however, going beyond the mere relief of the poor. In truth, the word poor here carries with it undertones. Not so much connected actually with economic poverty, as it is connected to, to physical poverty and illness. In fact, a stronger translation of the Hebrew word here for poor would actually be weak. Blessed is the one who considers the weak. This translation would accord well with the remainder of the psalm. You you probably noticed the the heavy concern throughout the psalm of of, of sickness and illness and health. This is especially apparent there in verse 3. Blessed is the man, we could say, who considers the weak. This means that he, he, he considers, he wisely, he judiciously considers his case. This psalm is actually a wisdom psalm. It's a call to wisdom. How can we consider, think about the weak? David, the author of this psalm, was known for his care for the weak. One of the most merciful and compassionate passages about David's concern for the weak is found in 2 Samuel chapter 9. In that passage, we're reminded that David, he, he made a covenant with his dear friend Jonathan. And after taking the throne, David sought out the members of Jonathan's household in order to bless them. Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, he was the only one who remained, and he was crippled in both of his feet. Mephibosheth was, was brought into the king's presence, and he saw himself, Mephibosheth saw himself as a dog in the presence of the king. But David generously opened his hand to Mephibosheth, restoring to him his family's lost property, and he gave him a place to sit at the king's table, enjoying fellowship with the king, David was a blessed man. He was adored and approved by God. For he considered the weak and the infirm. David lived the opening declaration of this psalm. He was, after all, a man after God's own heart. 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. He is a man who hopes in the Lord's blessing. How will the Lord's favor, blessing, adoration make itself known? When this man is met with trouble, he will be delivered kept alive, protected from his enemies, sustained on his sickbed, and restored to full health. That's what we see there in verses 2 and 3. The psalmist himself may be in this very position. He may be close to death. He may be the weak one. And find himself depending upon the Lord for life. How can the psalmist depend upon these promises? He can depend upon these promises because they are a summary form of the promises of God found in God's covenants with Abraham and Moses and David. God's covenant with Abraham found in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, was one of blessing and land. You see that right here in this text. And the Mosaic covenant found in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 1 to 14, is a promise of protection from enemies. And then the Davidic covenant found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised David that one of his descendants would sit on his throne. Seems like David knew that the Lord would need to bring him through this illness so that he could fulfill his promises. And all of these promises eventually find their yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. But for a moment, let's remember how the Lord Jesus was blessed by God and how He helped the weak. Is it a mere coincidence that after God the Father announces his blessing from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, the one who I adore. Is it it a mere coincidence Jesus goes about the work of helping the weak? Remember what the Father said and what Jesus did. Remember after Jesus' baptism, he he enters into temptation. He he entered into temptation for us, where, where we would have been weak. We would have given in, but Jesus did not. And after his temptation, Jesus he begins to heal those who, in the words of Matthew chapter twenty-four, uh, chapter four, verse twenty-four, were afflicted with various diseases and pains; those oppressed by demons; those having seizures and paralytics. In so many ways, in so many of these healings, Jesus did more than just consider the outward physical illnesses. Do you remember what Jesus said to that paralytic who was lowered through the roof? Remember what he said. He said in Mark chapter 2, verse 5, Son, your sins are forgiven. Like David, Jesus was blessed and adored by God. Like David, Jesus considered the poor, he considered the weak. He considered that our greatest problem was not our physical sickness, but our spiritual sickness. Jesus came to, to help the weak with their sin. Remember what, what Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verse 6? He said, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the, godly, for the ungodly. And here's a question that we're going to have to come back to. Have we considered the one who is poor and weak? Have we given careful thought and consideration to the one who is weak? Remember that this call is a call to wisdom. Have we in faith considered the weak one? Have we become wise? Have we come to understand that though weakness is despised by the world, it is treasured by God? Have have we become wise to the truth that humiliation and weakness in Jesus were required for our salvation? Have we given thought to the one who has become poor for us, And in the words of Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4, has taken up our infirmities and borne our griefs. Remember the words from Frank Houghton's Christmas Carol Thou who wast rich, beyond all splendor, all for love's sake, became poor. Thrones for a manger didst surrender, sapphire paved courts for stable floor. Thou who wast rich, beyond. All splendor, all for love's sake, became poor. If you wish to be blessed, approved, and adored by God, then you must consider Jesus Christ. Jesus became acquainted with grief for us. But before we consider Jesus' grief, we need to consider David's grief as portrayed in verses 4 to 10 in this psalm. So let's turn and consider our second point, acquainted with grief. And as we do, read Psalm 41, verses 4 through 10, then. Psalm 41, beginning there in verse 4. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me, heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me, they whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I... May repay them. It's important to notice that this portion of the Psalm is bookended by a petition for the Lord to be gracious to David. Verse 4 As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me, heal me, and skip down to verse 10. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up. Between these two bookends of requests for grace, we have sin and sinners. In the midst of it all, David is acquainted with grief. He was acquainted with the grief that his sin brought, and he is acquainted with the grief of his sneering enemies, and he is acquainted with the grief of betrayal of his close friend. In verse 4, David confesses sin. The challenge for us as readers is that David doesn't specify his sin, he doesn't tell us what sin he has committed or when he committed it. As the king of God's people, he may even be taking responsibility for the sins of Israel. Remember, as the king, he is the representative head of God's people. As the representative head of God's people, he bears the consequences of Israel's sin. And the reverse is also true. When the, when the, when the king sins, the people bear the consequences for his sin. You only need read the second half of Second Samuel to see the grief that comes to Israel as a consequence of David's sin. Since the king represents the people, what is clear is that God's people need a king who is sinless. God's people need a king who will not bring God's curse upon God's people through his sin, but will take God's curse for God's people because of their sin. Whatever the case may be, David takes responsibility for sin, and he appeals to God for mercy and grace. He appeals to God for healing. It may be that David views his illness as a consequence of sin. As a result of sin's presence in our world, uh, there's certainly sickness and suffering. But sometimes God visits sickness and suffering upon his people when they have sinned against him. There is, of course, the frightening case of the church in Corinth. You may recall that the church was improperly practicing the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Some members of the church were selfishly rushing to celebrate the Lord's Supper without the weaker and poorer brethren of the church. After identifying this sin and selfishness in the congregation, God gave the Apostle Paul the divine insight to proclaim this. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Paul sees as a consequence of the Corinthian sin, God visiting the congregation with weakness and illness and death. God brought sickness and death upon that Corinthian congregation so that they might recognize their sin and repent. And that, that was a mercy of God. Like that situation in Corinth, it may be that God gave David divine insight to understand that his sickness was connected with his sin or the sin of his people. Now, we ought not attribute every, or maybe even any, illness that we encounter to our personal sin. It's quite difficult, if not impossible, to read the hand of providence like that. It's speculative at best. We only know these cases with respect to the church in Corinth, and possibly David because they're recorded in Scripture, and thereby divinely revealed. Nevertheless, we must say that now, now is always a good time to repent. Whenever the Lord awakens you to sin in your life and heart, either through the the preached Word, the study of Scripture, the means of grace, or the loving correction of another, repent and run to the Lord Jesus for forgiveness and mercy and grace. Confess with David, Lord, I have sinned. Believe with David that God is gracious and willing to forgive all sin in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. Not only was David facing the grief of sin... He was also facing the grief of sinners. While David was suffering for sin, he was also suffering the malice. You see that word there? Malice of sinners. Malice filled their hearts and their mouths. Do you see the words they spoke concerning David? Verse 5, When will he die and his name perish? And then verse 8, A deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. How could anyone say that? How could anyone say, I wish you were dead? I I wish that this sickness that you're afflicted with would overtake your life and we'd be done with you, that you'd be destroyed. These are malicious words in the mouths of David's enemies. Those words are empty. You see there, verse 6? They're empty and they're full all at the same time. They were empty. They were devoid of any form of love or compassion. And they were full. They were full of iniquity. Hatred and wickedness Let these malicious words be a warning to us all. Our tongues, our tongues can do great damage. Our words can be devoid of loving compassion, while at the same time being full of evil and wickedness. Christian, Christian, watch your words. Be wise with what you say. Be wise with what you say to a person in an email in a text message, on social media. Many will tell you that what you put on the web, you can never get back. And the same is true for the words that actually come out of our mouths. Children, youth, young adults, be careful with your words. Young people, consider the words of James chapter three, verses nine and 10, concerning the tongue. With it, which is to say that with our tongues, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Young people, there's a phrase that's been thrown around for quite a while. Maybe you've heard it. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. There is a great deal of wisdom in that phrase. But God's word has even more wisdom for our words. Hear what Paul says. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 29 and 31, Paul writes, let no, let no let no, corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice." You see, God's Word teaches us that it matters what we say. It matters how we say it. It matters when we say it. And it matters with what motives we say it. Let me say that again. God's Word teaches us that it matters what we say. It matters how we say it. It matters when we say it. And it matters with what motives we say it. Young people, let me encourage you to talk with your parents, Christians, brothers and sisters. Let's, encourage you, let's talk amongst ourselves about the importance of our words and how God calls us to use our words for God's gracious purposes in this world. David's enemies had malice in their hearts when they spoke these words. When will he die and his name perish? Jesus David's greater son had enemies with that same malice. They too wanted him dead. Mark chapter 3 verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. That is just in the third chapter of Mark's gospel. We barely get three chapters in to Mark's gospel. And Jesus already has enemies who want to destroy him. Mark chapter 11, verse 18 tells us, and the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. Mark chapter 14, verse 1, it was now two days after the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. John, John chapter 7, verse 1, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And then in John chapter 7, verse 19, Jesus actually confronts his enemies, saying, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Like David, Jesus was acquainted with the grief of sinners seeking to destroy him. If it weren't bad enough, David had enemies outside his house in verse 9 we learn that he had enemies within his house too David he shared his table with a traitor he had communion, fellowship feasts with a traitor most biblical scholars believe that David he is here referring to his close friend and counselor Ahithophel when David's son Absalom sought to steal the kingdom away from David in 2 Samuel chapter 15 Ahithophel was among the conspirators with Absalom. David trusted Ahithophel, and his betrayal brought him great sorrow and grief. The idea that we see here of one, uh, of lifting up one's heel expresses the, the adversarial posture that Ahithophel took toward David. It's as if, as if David's close friend stood up over the table and sought to stomp on David. In the Gospel of John, Jesus applies this text to his relationship with Judas Iscariot. If you would, keep, keep one finger here and turn over in your Bibles to John chapter 13. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find the passage on page 900. John chapter 13. In this chapter, we find Jesus has taken the position of the poor and weak one. He has taken the position and the posture of a servant who considers the needs of his disciples by washing their feet. Begin reading there in John chapter 13, verse 12. John chapter 13, verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. I know who I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. And here's Psalm 41, 9. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples of whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter mentioned, motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So, when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Here, Jesus identifies himself as the descendant of David, the weak one, who will be betrayed by a friend with whom he shares bread. Jesus makes plain that Psalm 41 was about him. Go ahead and turn back to Psalm 41. And again, that's on page 469 469 of the Bibles provided. As we turn back to Psalm 41, it's appropriate for us to ask the question, the same question that the disciples asked, Lord, who is it? In the Gospel of Matthew, we're told that after after this, after Jesus' revelation that he would be betrayed, we read this, and they, that is the disciples, the disciples were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, is it I, Lord? Christian, you need to realize that you share bread with Jesus at this table when we celebrate communion. You share bread with Jesus at this table when we celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper. Don't, Betray Jesus. Don't lift up your heel against him, for Jesus will repay his enemies. By virtue of his resurrection from the dead, God has given Jesus the authority to judge the world in righteousness. Here's John chapter 5, verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And in Acts chapter 17 verse 31, Paul tells us that God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Don't betray Jesus. In verse 10, notice there that David asks the Lord to reverse his circumstances and make him the victor. David asks the Lord to make him the one who not only lifts his heel, but brings it down upon the head of his enemy. This is the role of the king he is to execute God's justice. And David was confident that he would indeed rise from his sickbed again. The weak one will not be weak for much longer. Though for a little while he was marked by sickness and suffering, the king would soon be crowned with glory and honor. And so, in verses 11 and 12, the king is assured of glory. This is the third point to which we wish to consider. Assured of glory. And as we do, read verses 11 and 12 now. By this, I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me. Because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. The idea of glory is drawn out of that, the last half of verse 12. Set me in your presence forever. For David, this would have been a poetic way of expressing his certainty that he would return to his throne and rule for God. But it would have meant more, too. For David longed for God's promised Messiah to come David knew that his entrance into God's heavenly throne room was dependent upon God sending his Messiah, his Christ. And as we learned from Psalm 16 last week, David seemed to understand that his own resurrection was dependent upon the resurrection of his greater Son. David also expressed confidence or assurance in these verses too. He is sure, he is certain that God delights in him and will not allow his enemy to shout in triumph over him. David is so certain of this future hope that he speaks of it in verse 12 as a thing that's already been accomplished. But you have upheld me. David says in full confidence and assurance. And notice the basis of his certainty. God will uphold him because of his integrity. Does does David think too highly of himself? I mean, we all know that David's a sinner especially if this psalm is related to Absalom's conspiracy and Ahithophel's betrayal, then we know that David has committed the gross sins of adultery and murder. Can David really say that he has integrity? Yes, he can. Though he is and was filled with sin in the main, the character of the man was godly. He repented when confronted with his sins. Remember where the psalm and the psalter began. David is the one who keeps the law who delights in God's law and does God's law by considering the poor. His enemies, however, are filled with envy and malice and treachery. The outcome of this conflict within reveals, and without reveals God's pleasure and his delight in his king. He does not and will not let his king be defeated. This was true of David, but he was a type and a shadow of God's true king and son who was to dawn upon the dark world. David was rescued from the grave. David was rescued from his sickbed. He was not the king who was to bear the full weight of the punishment upon the sins of God's people. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus was to bear that weight and be paid those wages in his death on the cross. Jesus was not rescued from the grave. He went into it so that he might be brought up out of it. And he was raised because of his integrity. Jesus lived and died for sinners. And the fact, in the words of 1 Peter 2, verse 22, we're told that Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And yet, two verses later, the Apostle Peter tells us that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. The Apostle Paul says something similar in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. There Paul says that Jesus... Though Jesus knew no sin, Jesus was made sin. Though Jesus was sinless, like King David, he represented a sinful people. And he took the punishment of the sins of his people upon himself. Still, in fulfillment of this psalm, Jesus had to be raised from the grave. And he had to ascend to the right hand of God the Father to reign in his presence forever. Do you know why Jesus had to be raised from the grave? Why did Jesus have to be raised from the grave? Well, how else would we know, in the words of verse verse 10, that God delighted in Him? We know that God delighted in Jesus not by letting death triumph over Him. When Jesus went to the cross, He was condemned in the place of sinners, though He was innocent, Though he was free of sin, he suffered the judicial punishment of the guilty. He took the punishment that they deserved and he would remain dead until he was vindicated, justified, and declared to be righteous in God's sight. That's what justification is. Justification is a judicial declaration that a person is not only free of guilt, but that he is in fact righteous and that God delights in him, approves of him, adores him. Jesus needed to be justified. He needed to be openly declared righteous, not because he was guilty or had done anything wrong, but because he had done everything right. He was the only man who lived with perfect integrity. He was not guilty. He was innocent. He was righteous. And it needed to be announced to the world that Jesus was in fact sinless and righteous and that God delighted in him. That is what His resurrection was. It was God the Father's open acknowledgement, His open acquittal, His open approval of Jesus Christ. It was a public vindication of His good name. That is why Paul writes in 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, He was manifested in the flesh and vindicated by the Spirit. Jesus was holy. Yet on the cross he was made sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 But as long as as he remained under the power of death, the righteous character of his person and work remained in question. As long as Jesus remained under the power of death, the righteous character of his person and work remained in question. As long as Jesus remained dead, the world would perceive that he was damned. By God But the removal of death was the confirmation, the vindication, the justification, the declaration that He was in fact righteous and the Son with whom the Father was well pleased. And since Jesus Christ's righteous life was vindicated, since He has been declared to be just by His resurrection from the dead, so can we as we receive His righteous life on our behalf by faith. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Unless Jesus was justified in God's sight and openly delighted in by His resurrection from the dead, we have no hope of being justified and declared righteous and enjoying God's delight. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then we are still in our sins. Do you see the importance of the resurrection in relationship to our salvation and justification and God's delight in us? Friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer or a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want to invite you to come to Jesus today in repentance and faith. Friend, turn from your sin and rebellion against God and trust that in Jesus your sins are forgiven. Trust that your sins are forgiven through His righteous life, through His substitutionary death, and His justifying resurrection from the dead. And if you want to know more about what that means, then please come and find me at the door after the service. I'd love to speak to you about this good news. That in Jesus Christ, we have God's approval through our faith union with Him. My brothers and sisters in Christ, how then should we live in light of Christ's resurrection from the dead? our hearts should certainly be filled with gratitude. Jesus got what he deserved in his justification and in his resurrection. He deserved the vindication of his good name. God justifies on the basis of Jesus' good name. And it is good and right and generous of him to do that. So we must always give thanks for his generous and gracious gift of justification through faith in Jesus Christ. Indeed, we should worship And adore our God. Which is our fourth and final point. The adoration of God. Read verse 13 of Psalm 41 now. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and Amen. Nearly every scholar points out that this verse concludes book 1 of the Psalms. And that it mirrors the conclusions of books 2. Three, four, and five. If you were to fast forward through every conclusion of every book in the Psalms, you would find that in one way or another, we find the adoration or praise of God. This is true. And we also need to let verse 13 serve as the proper conclusion to Psalm 41 itself. It's not just a tag on, so we do this neat little interesting thing at the end of every book. It has a role to play in this Psalm 2. In response to the truth of Psalm 41, we are called to praise and adore God. It is good and right for us to do so, given what is here revealed in the psalm. We'll think through what it means to praise God in light of this psalm in a moment, but for now, consider that this psalm concludes with a double amen. Did you notice that? Amen simply means, it is true, or I agree. If you think a prayer is true, or if you agree with that prayer, then you should say, Amen. Say it audibly. Say it loudly so that others hear. Say amen and declare that you are a person who worships and adores God. Have you thought about how the ancient people of God would have taken this psalm up? And how they would have read it and worshipped God through it? This is always important for us to do as we read and study the psalms. In reading this psalm, the people of Israel would have been reminded that the blessed one, the one who is approved by God, is one who considers the poor and the weak. Then the people of Israel would have seen that their king, David, was the poor and weak one. He was the one who was sick and suffering for sin, but who held on to the Lord in the midst of his suffering. He was the one who believed that the Lord would raise him up, so they should believe too. That's what it would have meant for them to consider the poor. The way of wisdom for the people of Israel would have been to remember that God approves of the poor, the weak, and the suffering king. God would honor him for his humiliation, and he would raise him in exaltation. The people of Israel should side with God's king and guard their tongues from speaking against him. They should not betray him or abandon him. They should pray for him. His death and defeat would have meant weariness and woe for the kingdom. But his victory would bring good and glory to the kingdom. Their interests were tied up with his because he was their representative ruler. So when their king rallied and arose from his sickbed to triumph over his enemies, they could praise God for his goodness in protecting his king and the kingdom from failing and falling. And they could say, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. How do we read, how do we, you and I, read this psalm and worship God through it in light of its fulfillment in Jesus Christ? This is what I want us to think about as we conclude. When you read those words, blessed is the one who considers the poor, you should think of Jesus. He is the one who not only cared for the poor... But listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Paul writes concerning Jesus, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet, he became, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. Have you considered Christ, the one who became poor for us and for our salvation? Consider Him and trust in Him. He entered into the frailty of human flesh and suffered. He trusted that God the Father would raise him up from the grave as God raised David up from his sickbed. The way of wisdom for us is to remember that God the Father loves and approves of His Son, the suffering King. We should at every moment side with Jesus. We should not take His name in vain or take His name in malice upon our lips, and we should not betray Him like Judas we must remember that as our representative ruler, our eternal interests are tied up with His reigning in God's presence forevermore. Because He has gone through His humiliation and entered into His exaltation because He has triumphed over the enemies of sin and death, so will we who believe in Him. So we praise God for His goodness in protecting our King And his kingdom, we praise God that Christ's kingdom shall not fail, that he rules over earth and heaven. And through our faith union with Jesus Christ, we are adored by God. Though in this life we are acquainted with grief, sharing in the sufferings of Christ, we have been assured of glory by Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And so we join in the adoration of God with the people of God down through the ages, proclaiming, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Let's pray together.